To conclude his distinguished career, legendary Australian herbalist Dennis Stewart will present his final course, a professional extension in herbal medicine. Commencing on the 23rd of November 2019, this 12-day intensive course will be held over a period of 12 months on the New South Wales Central Coast. This will be your last opportunity to participate in detailed learning with Dennis, covering relevant, effective herbal prescriptions to treat an expansive range of conditions. For more information and to register, please go to lakespa.com.au. Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. Joining us on the line today is Tanya Wells. She's a qualified naturopath practicing for over 20 years. Her special interest and expertise is in research and development of integrative oncology programs, utilising the best evidence-based complementary therapies to work in conjunction with conventional therapies such as surgery, chemotherapy and radiotherapy. She's visited and worked in integrative oncology hospitals in Europe and Asia, and is continually collaborating with other practitioners to ensure her programs and clinic model are continually developing. Tanya is an experienced lecturer at the tertiary level, including at Southern School of Natural Therapies and Endeavour College, as well as at the Faculty of Medicine at Monash University. Tanya has written and presented a range of drug-herb-nutrient interactions seminars for medical, pharmacy and nursing professionals in integrative medicine and she's a contributing author to a range of clinical textbooks and I warmly welcome you back to FX Medicine. Tanya, how are you? Great, thanks so much for that lovely introduction Andrew. Well it's not something you haven't earned. You've done a heck <laughs> of a lot of work over your 20 years, collaborative work I might add. Yes, I find collaboration very enriching especially you know, with overseas practitioners who do things differently and as much as we might not be able to do those things here, there are a lot of ideas and and um, options for us to think about just to broaden the way we think about oncology. Hmm. Now, today we're going to be talking about life after cancer treatment. Now, this is a yeah. whole can of worms, this one. So what are the steps in supporting patients in the post-treatment phase? There are a number of steps. So just to give a little snapshot of where that patient is at, let, let, let's start with that. So there are a lot of patients who choose not to have any integrative medicine during their treatment. They, they decide to just have the medical treatment and then afterwards they, they might come to us for support in recovery. But just to understand exactly what that person's been through, is one of the biggest steps to start with as a practitioner. Mm. So that person has been, as far as they're aware, completely healthy and then either because of a symptom or a lump or a random set of imaging, they've been given a diagnosis of cancer, massive shock, and then immediately going into the treatment model. Now, when you're actually in that treatment model, which might be surgery followed by chemo, followed by radiation or just surgery or just radiation or chemo radiation or whatever the combination is, mm -hmm. 
that happens very quickly after diagnosis and biopsy and imaging. So that person has previously been on what we call the oncology treadmill where you, you get on it and you can't get off. You're, you're on this process, just putting one foot in front of the other, getting through that, getting through all the appointments, getting through the day, managing everything else in your world like kids and relationships and everything else. And then at the end, that patient has been found to be NED, which means no evidence of disease. They've finished their treatment and they often feel quite literally abandoned yeah. by their medical team. So their, their medical team will say, okay, you're doing great. Off you go. Come back in a year and we'll do another lot of imaging or come back in three months or six months. Get back to your life. And that space, that space is actually the hardest space for that person to navigate through the whole process because they are on their own. I often see this as having parallels to birth and in that there's a lot of prenatal care, perinatal care, and once you have a baby, it's like, bye. And, yeah. and, and I know that's, that's right. a joyous occasion. Cancer is a horrible, you know, um, journey that people have to travel. But as you say, it's where the anxiety and the fear and the unknowing, uncertain future begin. Mm. Um, and, and you're absolutely right with some parallels too to giving birth because, you know, during the treatment process, all you can think about is I've only got three cycles of chemo <laughs> to go, I've only got two lots of radio to go and then I'll be finished, then I'll be good, you know, and with having a baby, then I'll have the baby. But then, and you want that to be a joyous occasion, but the closer you get to the end of the treatment program, the more you actually start to feel stressed and depressed and anxious because now you've got an opportunity to think, but but what's next? How do I, what, what has happened to me? What the hell has happened to me in the last year? How did I even get this? Why has this happened? Where do I go from here? It's a very, very challenging and confronting space for patients to be able to navigate. So in navigating that system and that space that they're in, um, there's a huge gap in our healthcare system. And this is actually where that person might seek out their complementary therapist to, to get some support. Let's say, let's take the example of breast cancer. You know, patients come out of surgery, chemo, radio. They've sometimes, or, or certainly in urban environments, they've got breast cancer specialists nurses mm -hmm. um, for yep. ongoing care. Now, it's very often wound and, you know, post-operative issues like cording and things like that. Mm. Um, is there any psychological care given to these pa patients? Look, it depends on who your treating team is. So if you've got a, this is unfortunately where there can be quite a large disparity between the private and public systems. If you're in a private system, Often an oncologist will be able to say, right, off you go. And if you actually pipe up and say, I'm not coping, then they might say, oh, okay, well, we'll refer you to a psychologist or the nurse practitioner will refer you uh, to a psychologist mm. and then you can go to your GP and get a mental health care plan and get some subsidised consultations. But um, even at the end, you know, you're talking about having wound care and all of that kind of thing, that's often finished. So the main hospital care has finished and then you're progressing to physiotherapists ah, right. off-site who are then supporting you with the courting and 
any other sort of musculoskeletal or uh, issues associated with that. So that's away from the hospital system. Um, and so you're not really in that space anymore, which you were receiving care from, and then you're not receiving care from them anymore. Mm. So you've got to actually drive the next phase on your own. You don't have someone else driving it for you. Uh, and this is also a moment where those patients actually have a moment to think, which we don't get to do when we're in treatment. And that is fraught with danger because you're sitting there, you know, starting to think and reflect mm. on your experiences and it is very confronting to actually start to reflect on some of these trauma-based experiences. And I'm imagining that very little, if any, of this is discussed with the oncologist or by the oncologist? Very little, typically. So yeah. it does depend on the oncologist. Some mm. oncologists are great. They will provide a lot of uh, referrals, but they don't have the time or the space to really support that patient in a holistic way. So this is where we come in. This is where referrals come in. Uh, but it's amazing how many people will come and see a naturopath or a natural health practitioner at the end of treatment and when they haven't even seen a psychologist yet. So there's a lot of issues that we need to wow. to work through to be able to support that person. It's complex. Yeah. And yet, pragmatically speaking, oncologists drive cars. An oncologist would be filled with dread if they bought a car and there was no after-sales service and, you know, <laughs> continuing care of that car. I, f I find it strange that there's this real a real disparity, a real sort of lack of continuation of care of patients when mm. we know, I mean, we're talking about five-year, 10-year survival rates. Well, how about we work for that? How about we engage in the patient during that time to make sure that their, mm. their time on earth is, is as long as possible? Well, that's right. And this is where often uh, the medical oncologist will refer the patient back to their GP for general care and recovery. Uh, the GP would may do some follow-up bloods, although that patient has had so many bloods done over the time that they've been receiving treatment that they often won't want any bloods. Right. Uh, and usually, if they if they really do have no evidence of disease at the time, uh, the the next lot of imaging won't be for a year, or and then maybe some bloods at six months. So you will see uh, a member of your surgical team or medical oncologist every six months usually. So sometimes patients will stretch it out. So they, they'll they see their medical oncologist every six months and they'll see their, say, their surgeon every six months. So they scatter them and stagger them so they see someone every three months to have an opportunity to have a conversation about it. But in between there, there's an enormous three-month gap where there is a lack of provision of care. Right. Uh, and the amount of the sort of care that you need during that time is very, very different. And I, I think we almost have to go back to what you said earlier. That is NED. What is no evidence of disease? What it is that? What does it actually mean? So this is the new phrase for um, what people used to say. Oh, you're cured. You're in remission. Those phrases aren't used anymore in oncology. Uh, now it's just called NED. So that's where there's no evidence of disease on any imaging. Bloods seem to be clear that there's nothing that appears to be awry. But they say this because, of course, there is no test that is completely accurate about detecting whether there are any cancer cells in your body. 
And, you know, if you've done any oncology um, study before, you know, that everybody is making on cancer cells every day. We've all got dodgy cells in our system. And it's just whether they have an opportunity to replicate and become a, you know, population, a cluster or a population. Now, in order for something to develop its own blood supply, a little cluster of cancer cells, it needs to be one millimetre in diameter and then its growth can uh, explode to the point where it might be five millimetres or ten millimetres. Now, when it comes to imaging, a lesion needs to be around five millimetres to be detected on the average MRI or PET scan. So if you have a PET scan and there's, there's nothing above five millimetres, You've got a lag then there's there, no evidence you? of disease. So it's not necessarily the case that you have no cancer cells left. Remembering, too, that a cluster of cancer cells is what we call a heterogeneous population. So they're not all clones of each other. They have slightly different genetic makeups, slightly different growth tendencies. So as much as that person might have had a range of chemotherapy drugs, there will still be those few cells that aren't killed. They're not killed by chemotherapy. They're not killed by radiation. There's a few cells that are surviving almost always, which is why with almost all types of cancer, there's a risk of recurrence because those smaller populations of, of resistant cells can then become a new population as time goes on. So NED just means, look, with the current testing that we have at the moment, there's no evidence of disease present. So the, the simplistic thought after that would be, well, why don't we measure circulating tumour cells? But this, again, is fraught with issues, isn't it? Because, as you say, we're making them all the time. When does it become a problem? When can we see issues? Mm. So circulating tumour cell testing can be really helpful, and I certainly use that in my practice. Um, I have found that circulating tumour cell test results are not necessarily reflective of a solid tumour presence. Uh, you know, you can have very low circulating tumour cells but have a very actively growing tumour yeah. and vice versa. But, you know, circulating tumour cells are a good overall test. There is one test in the, the pack of uh, tools that you will use in monitoring patients in an ongoing way. So, yeah, there's usually a level of circulating tumour cells which is a cut-off point, you know, if it's above that, that's when we start to think about having interve- interventions. If it's below that, then that's really kind of the normal range of circulating tumour cells. What about possibly measuring signals in the body, like VEGF? Yes, so that can be part of a circulating tumour cell testing package where you can actually isolate circulating tumour cells and test their genetic makeup to see what percentage of those circulating tumour cells have mutations in in certain uh, markers of growth mm-hmm. uh, or express that um, express that gene more profoundly than others and, and that can be it. But that's also a very expensive package. So right. it's not necessarily realistic for the average patient. You know, I might see 5% of my patients will actually have spare money, especially after having cancer treatment, which can be very expensive, including, you know, lost income from not being able to work and so on. So there are patients who just can't afford that. So we have to go back to more basic options in general practice of naturopathy. And that's where we look at the other drivers or other factors that that we can search for. So markers of inflammation or looking at particular types of cancer and saying, look, methylation tends to be an issue in this 
type of cancer. Let's test demethylation. We can test um, other inflammatory markers because that's a powerful driver of cancerous change. Right. Um, antioxidant levels, your basic nutrition status and the status of your hormone system, which can actually be out of whack after right. having treatment. Right. So all of those things we want to normalise before we get into complex testing. And what about the language that we use with our patients? We've, we've discussed the psychological issues. Um, you know, there's a, a colloquial term out there called scanxiety, you know, like what's the next scan going to show? That constant brewing hypervigilance that may not be occurring straight after, but certainly in the ensuing months and years after a cancer treatment, there is that risk of recurrence. And so how do we approach this properly with our patients without, you know, sort of being, um, not pacifying, what's it called? Placating. Mm. That's a really good question. And there's sort of two parts to that question that I'd like to flesh out a bit. One is what language do we use? So there are very common phrases that people say, you know, oh, you're on your cancer journey or you're a cancer survivor. You know, some people wear that as a very proud badge of life and other people don't don't want to actually be reminded of that experience, especially if it's recent and they have a very raw sensation about the trauma that they've been through. Um, The other thing is that, you know, often when someone passes away from cancer, we say, oh, they lost their battle with cancer. Now, that phrase is actually profoundly unhelpful uh, to patients who have cancer because if you think about it, you go into a battle You can see your opponent. You can see what weapons they have. You can see how big they are and what your chances of defeating them are. Mm, But cancer, mm. of course, is an invisible foe, an invisible weapon. We have no idea what to do to defend ourselves against those processes. So that kind of phrase, we have to just rethink the way we say things because that kind of phrase almost implies fault on the part of the patient. Mm-hmm. That, oh, well, you didn't fight hard enough, you know, oh, oh, I see. that right. kind of thing. So we have to just be a little bit more mindful about the language that we use. Hmm. And even the phrase uh, risk of recurrence, you know, I've found that in clinic I have to say that phrase less and less because, um, you know, that risk of recurrence is a reminder that you actually might have a recurrence. And throughout their process, they'll be hit with a number of statistics by all of their practitioners about what their risk of recurrence is over and over and over again, or yeah, their five-year survival rate. Your five-year survival rate is likely to be this with treatment or this without treatment. Mm. So patients have a very sensitised reaction to language. So let's talk about things like let's promote healthy longevity rather than let's reduce your risk of recurrence. So I often talk about healthy longevity. We're talking about uh, living in the moment, you know, embracing life. You are trying to um, speak in a more positive way uh, just to try to be different to the language that they tend to be faced with in the medical system. And what about things like, you know, don't worry now, you're over, you're over the hump. Um, everything's yeah. going to be okay now, that sort of thing. Yes. Of course. As humans, we want to support people. We want to be supportive. And it's our natural status to give platitudes like that. 
Um, unfortunately, if you have a good conversation with a psycho-oncology professional, we know that platitudes are kind of fundamentally unhelpful because if we say something like, don't worry, it's going to be okay, mm. you know, that person, there's that little voice in their head that says, well, how do you know that it's going to be okay? Yeah. Um, I've been told this statistic, I don't really know. Um, you know, the, what we're trying to do, and this is where we refer to psychologists to have that support, is to help that person live with uncertainty. How do you live with uncertainty? Uh, and part of that is kind of living in the now, bringing that person back to now. I have some patients who are so overwhelmed with their fear of recurrence that they are quite literally unable to function in the world. They are unable to have relationships with even their family members, husband, wife, because they're so crippled by that fear of recurrence and statistics. So it's more about saying, look, now you don't have a recurrence. Now you are healthy and I'm going to support you to have even um, greater promotion of healthy longevity. Let's focus on that. Let's live in the now. During this time of hypervigilance, particularly straight after their original uh, treatment, is there a period at greater risk for them? And is this driven indeed by their anxiety hormones? Yes. Um, in most cancer presentations, uh, the greatest risk of recurrence is, of course, in the first two to three years after having a diagnosis because that's where you might have those residual resistant cells present that haven't been eliminated by the treatments that you've received. In those first two to three years is where that patient will understandably be hypervigilant, understandably have that level of anxiety that you talked about before mm. um, and be excessively focusing on every little thing. You know, They'll say, oh, I've got a little wound on my hand, is that cancer? I've got a cough, have I got secondaries in my lung? I've got, you know, one little thing, of course, the first thing you think about is cancer. And then, of course, when you go on Dr. Google, if anyone's Dr. Googled, mm. you know, mm. a cough, cough. Yeah. One, of, one of the first five things that comes up, of course, is cancer. So we are understandably traumatized during that time and this trauma is actually one of the biggest issues in that you know we sometimes talk about it as being a, a post-traumatic syndrome it is like that but you know patients aren't necessarily um, anxious about what might happen it triggers an anxiety about what did happen what did happen the last time they had a scan what did happen to their body what did happen to their energy and you know, they may have had profound vomiting or whatever happened in their um, cancer experience. Mm. So this is where the hypervigilance, it's, it's validating that fear yeah. without necessarily allowing it to continue. I've got an example just from today. So today in clinic, I saw a patient who has been my patient. She's been NED for the last three years, original diagnosis bowel cancer with METs in the lung and she is presenting with a cough. Now, this is something that we have to be vigilant about. We have to look at this and say, okay, tell me about the cough. 
it seemed infectious, started with a fever, but it has lingered beyond the time at which it would be imaginable that she would recover from that. Right. Now, so this is one of those periods in which we have to say, right, when's the time for us to refer this person back to their oncology team? Um, you know, from my perspective, it's not that time yet because her cough is actually improving with naturopathic treatment. So if she had a oncology-related cough because she had a new metastasis in her lung, that cough would not be improving with a herbal mix and with some nutritional supplements. That right. would be staying the same. So with her, she's very fearful that it's a recurrence. So we have to look at it very clinically and say, okay, there is the possibility that it's a recurrence, but let's see what the criteria would be. I'm not ready to refer you back to your medical oncology team yet because your cough is improving with treatment and that doesn't match the clinical picture of someone who's having a recurrence. Right. So that's a that's supporting alleviation of that patient's fear with logic rather than just application. Yeah. And so after a reasonable period of time of treatment, you withdraw that treatment. If that cough returns, then you would say, okay, look, maybe there might be an issue here that's ongoing. Is that right? Yes, yes, yes. And that period of time does vary according to who you speak to. Um, you know, I've a really great surgeon in Melbourne called Bruce Mann. He, he has got a two to four week rule. So if you have a non-improving symptom for two to four weeks, then you go and get some imaging done or some testing done. Yeah. Uh, but if it's less than that period of time, then then don't worry about it. And the other practitioners might say three months. I think three months is a bit long. But uh, I would say sort of two to four weeks of a symptom not improving, that's when you would go and uh, get some further tests about yeah. cancer markers or, uh, you know, uh, some imaging to confirm whether everything's okay. When you're talking uh, encouraging words and you're sort of flipping them and, and having a positive outcome, so we you know we're going to concentrate mm. on longevity and things like that, it's all well and good for the clinic environment when they feel safe, they feel heard, they're with somebody who's expert like yourself. Then they go out and they talk to their friend mm. or then they drive somewhere and their inner voice starts talking. How, yeah. do, how do you keep patients on the positive track? Because mm. we, we know that chronic, like noradrenaline, chronic stress hormones are drivers of tumours and certainly yeah. recurrence. So how do we keep people from exacerbating the issue? Mm. It's, it's something that we have to have a team that we refer to. So for me, I'm going to be encouraging them to uh, start developing habits like mindfulness, you know, being allowing themselves to feel that fear, allowing themselves to explore it. I'm very big on having a safe space to actually feel what you need to feel without going, oh, no, I'm not going to feel that. I'm going to get going. I'm going to move on. I'm going to soldier on. You know, just allow yourself and be compassionate. Self-compassion is something that I'm very encouraging of, but also referring to appropriate practitioners. So I'm not a psychologist. I don't have the skills in being able to give you strategies uh, to help with those complex issues. I've got the basics of knowledge about psychology and certainly being in oncology for 20 years, you develop certain skills. But in that case, but beyond that, I always refer to a psychologist or a counselling team for regular support 
And and after treatment is where a patient wants that support. They have the time and space for the headspace to actually start to explore the shock of what has just happened mm-hmm. and other anxiety, depression. You know, your 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 life and you as a person have evolved uh, irreversibly. You have evolved into a new person through this experience. You actually can't go back to your life, like no. the doctor says. No. You I have to adapt to a new normal and all of your relationships change. You know, you get annoyed with people. People will complain about, you know, something pathetic and you get angry because you've had to deal with something extremely stressful. And so that in comparison just seems like it's not even worth vocalising. This is kvetching, right? Yeah. You know about it. We've got to, yeah. So we've got to... Support patients, but also know our limitations. Know your scope of practice. And this is where we are trying to support them in that moment to be able to refer them on to uh, appropriate practitioners to help guide them through being mindful, doing mindful courses. There's plenty of of mindfulness training courses out there that are incredibly uh, supportive in the the post-treatment phase. So Mm. is it a case that as you say, these people have evolved and they may actually have to change the sphere of people with whom they interact. Yes, that does happen. And and certainly, you know, getting annoyed by other people's fetching is um, usually a transient issue. So that's something that happens quite close to finishing treatment where it's all very raw. Um, you know, you're still feeling like crap after your treatment. Mm. You've got to try to get back to work. So you're very sensitive to things. Um, your hair's grown back. Yes, your hair's yes curly. you still yeah. look like you have been through cancer treatment. Yeah. Um, but this does settle. But yes, you're right. Relationships can change. And um, this is something that, you know, we need to be supportive to those patients. Another patient example that I've got from yesterday, uh, a patient has just finished all of her breast cancer treatment. Now, she had a... Uh, mastectomy with reconstruction from the abdomen. She then had, or she kept chemotherapy first, three different chemotherapy agents over six months, then surgery, then radiation. And now she's at the end of this on an aromatase inhibitor for ER positive breast cancer. So she's just finished a month ago her radiation. And throughout her treatment, her husband did not touch her once. So right. he could not be intimate with her. Right. He just couldn't touch her. And she would talk about that a lot during treatment. It was very distressing for her. And it's only, and we talked about it at the time. And, you know, as much as it's something that is very difficult to experience from someone you love that they're not touching you anymore mm, mm. and that intimacy is lost, which is actually a very common scenario. Um. You know, you get to the end and this is where there's an opportunity to talk about these things. And this lady's husband came into the consultation and we actually just opened it up and talked about that. Um, Now, you don't have to be a psychologist to do that, but it's more about, you know, he wasn't sure where to touch her and she was so distressed all the time. How can I touch you? But in the end, really, it's just any touch is good because all she's getting is clinical touch during the treatment. Yeah. And, you know, what you need is just a hand on the arm. You know, it doesn't have to be full intimacy. Mm. Uh, it's just loving touch. But, you know, he started to express 
how he felt about it, that he just didn't know yeah. how to touch her. Her body's changed. You know, his image of her has changed. That whole relationship has changed. She's got, you know, she had a revision of the other breast, so she's got a new body. She's got scars. She's distressed. She doesn't look the same as she did before or behave the same way. You know, there's a different person in front of him. It's hard to connect on that intimate level. So, you know, there are so many complex issues in this space that, you know, in recovery, that's the time that we can actually start to explore these things and also refer to other practitioners like a, a psychologist. But that talk there wasn't about psychology strategies. It was about, well, let's manage our expectations of ourselves and others. And that's something that we have to start to do as well as a newly recovering patient is just work out what we can and can't expect from people. Um, we can't expect them to understand what we've been through. We can't expect them to say the right thing. You know, we don't know how to react in this situation. We've never been there before. We wouldn't have a clue how that patient is thinking and feeling. So most people just do their best. But because we're so sensitive straight after treatment, it's a very stressful time. Yeah, and of course that can put their significant others in on, you know, sort of walking on eggshells around them as well. So I, I, I totally oh, yeah. take that point, yeah. Yeah, so I, you I mean it, it's understandable that she wanted more intimacy, but it's also understandable that he was having trouble. Yeah, um, worrying about that. when it, it was, was yeah when he it was, was constantly uh, worried. That's right. Mm. So the role of the practitioner, it's like um, for instance, you know, we've come out of chemo, radio. We want to get the body uh, back onto a, uh, a a path where a smouldering inflammation is not, you know, brewing, if you like. So let's go simple things. What about detox after cancer treatment? Absolutely. So this is where we have to go back to naturopathy 101. And, you know, you don't have to be an oncology specialist to do this. It's about what are the biggest issues in uh, cancer treatment? Detoxification. Your detoxification organs have been put through the ringer uh, being exposed to profound toxins. And if that person has received radiotherapy, that radiotherapy continues to have an effect in the body mm -hmm. for one year yep. at least. So it means that detoxification needs uh, assistance for one year at least after treatment. So, yes, liver support, gut support. Remember that chemotherapy, uh, the purpose of chemotherapy is to damage cells that are growing rapidly. And the cells that grow most rapidly are in the gut, that mucous membrane in the gut. So absolutely go back to your basics of naturopathy 101, focus on basic fundamental gut health, regenerating and rebuilding that gut lining, the microbiome, prebiotics, probiotics, eventually you don't give them probiotics straight away, but we're building that integrity of the gut, supporting liver and kidney function. And that's definitely the foundation of the treatment that they need to receive after they've finished um, cancer treatment. Right. And what about side effects? We all think about, you know, the side effects of cancer therapy, um, you know, let's say chemo or radio, you know, the, the, the common ones, the fatigue, that sort of thing, the nausea and vomiting. But what about where other organs are affected by, say, radiotherapy? Breast cancer, for instance, goes right near your heart right through That's your right. lungs. Um, you know, right. there's renal disease that can happen from long-term docs. So so when we've got these other tissues involved that may not have been the original problem but are sort of innocent bystanders, how do we manage That's, that? How do we make sure that we're looking after them? 
That's right. And there are a lot of issues. So we'll, we'll go through a few of the most common. So probably the most common uh, residual symptom after cancer treatment is fatigue. Yeah. Um, but we do need to just determine what that fatigue is coming from. So, for example, you arrive with radiation to the chest or some chemotherapy agents in the antibiotic family like doxorubicin, they affect heart muscle function. Mm, mm. Um, and certainly the effects of radiotherapy on the heart are better with the new radiotherapy techniques like the deep deep inhalation and breath hold. Uh, but still, it might be cardiac-induced fatigue. Yeah. So if they do actually have an echocardiogram you can have a look at, you can see what their ejection fraction is. If that's low, then they need cardiac support. The other area to consider is, of course, bone marrow function. So, of course, bone marrow is also one of the most rapidly dividing cell uh, sites in the body, and that's affected by all chemotherapy and radiotherapy. So, supporting bone marrow function. You know, we've got multiple uh, mushroom complexes and and other um, arabina glycans and other substances that can support bone marrow function, and we want to incorporate those. Yep. Or it might be adrenal. You know, they've had to pace themselves through a year of treatment uh, and adrenally they need just a good naturopathic tonic, uh, some sleep, they need support and they may actually have sleep issues from their treatment, uh, especially if they have night sweats or they've got chemotherapy-induced menopause as women. Huge issue. So sleep and adrenal function um, can affect fatigue. Cardiac issues, as you just said, so, you know, we're looking out for things like shortness of breath, um, arrhythmias, long-term peripheral neuropathy can occur uh, even just with one um, course of uh, the drug paclitaxel or it can also be from long-term uh, platinum, platinum agents and so on, other chemotherapy agents. So peripheral neuropathy is damage to the nerves at the periphery of the body, so the hands, the feet. can also be in the face, around the mouth, the tongue, where you get altered sensation. Now, that's actually secondary to um, capillary damage. So those baby capillaries get damaged. They then uh, basically die off and the nerves uh, can get damaged. So we're wanting to support cardiovascular and nerve function and we want to make sure that we're giving that treatment, especially uh, if that symptom is slightly there. We don't want it to become a permanent issue. Pulmonary fibrosis is another one that's quite common with uh, radiation. So pulmonary fibrosis is where we can have uh, scarring up of the lung as a consequence of radiation to the chest. And there are some vitamins that can be helpful for that, specifically vitamin E. But you need to take that for a good year after having radiotherapy. Do you prefer any particular forms of vitamin E, like the new tocotrienolmixes? Yes, I have used those tocotrienol mixes. Um, I'm a bit of a mixed tocopherol uh, practitioner, mostly because that's where the majority of the research indicates that vitamin E is helpful. Yep. I, I do still use a mixed tocopherol blend as my baseline treatment. Yep. Um, I guess a couple of other worthy uh, mentions with regards to side effects is uh, osteoporosis and fracture risk uh, and fertility issues. So more and more patients are being diagnosed with cancer quite young. Mm. And this is where, you know, we're going to be supporting their return to fertility as well as their return to vitality after treatment. And um, 
this is another area that is becoming bigger and bigger and bigger. You know, I'm constantly referring to fertility specialists, naturopaths, to be able to get that person um, up to that level of vitality where they can bear a pregnancy Mm -hmm. or if it's a man and they've had testicular issues, whatever, be able to have good fertile um, sperm concentrations in their ejaculate. So we really want to support that return to fertility. But I guess really the last big issue to discuss with regards to side effects of treatment is the risk of other cancers. Yeah. So there is a risk of secondary cancers because of treatment. And uh, certainly with chemotherapy, there is a risk of hematological cancers. Right. Um, there's also risk of secondary cancers from radiotherapy. Radiotherapy damages all of the cells, yep. healthy and cancer cells. It's just that the cancer cells don't have as good repair mechanisms as the healthy cells. So you're still getting damage to the healthy cells with repeated fractions of radiotherapy. And, of course, that can lead to dodgy cells, which in the future may become cancers. So if we know some details about their radiotherapy treatment, then we can start to learn about the possible risks and then tailor our anti-inflammatory and antioxidant protocol to support reducing that risk of secondary cancers. Right. And is this where you also employ, you know, surveillance sort of um, looking at markers, tumour markers as well? Yes. If they do have a cancer where you can look at a tumour marker, then that's great. Um, If they don't have any sort of tumour marker options, we usually look at general bloods, inflammatory markers, and make sure all of our baseline foundational vitamin levels, which have an impact on the antioxidant processes like vitamin E, vitamin uh, D levels. We want those D levels to be up above 100. Uh, We might look for uh, estrogen metabolite testing to see how their body's detoxifying. If they have a hormone receptive cancer, we want to look at liver function markers and inflammatory markers. Again, often going back to those basics of what create, what sort of tests can you do to determine whether that person is in a state of vitality. Um, so a few of the things that we could use to combat these issues, like fatigue, um, for instance, I remember a paper presented to ASCO, you know, massive um, clinical oncology mm. conference over in America, and yeah. it spoke about um, American ginseng. But the issue was that it was not successful over... I think one month I th- was only successful over two months. So you had to sort of basically get the patient on board. There was a, a decent dose there, I think two grams as well. It was notably without side effects. So so what sort of other things do you employ here? Apart from, of course, the basic things like exercise. Yes, exercise definitely does form the basis of treatment. I mean, if you look at the research about exercise, for example, in breast cancer, if you have been diagnosed with breast cancer, and you have never exercised in your life, if you start exercise after your treatment is completed, it can reduce your risk of recurrence by 50%, which is more than anything else combined. It's huge. Uh, So a referral to an exercise physiologist, especially if there are any ongoing musculoskeletal or cording or fatigue issues, um, and you're going to get muscle wastage through that time. So 
exercise physiology referral is enough. But um, and just encouraging people to be just be active every day. It doesn't have to be going to the gym and doing a CrossFit session. It can just be being active with their dog or kids or whatever. Um, but I do have a few favourite things that I, I use in this stage. Mostly it'll be very naturopathic restoratives. So, yeah, adrenal blends with withania, astragalus. You know, astragalus is still one of um, the Mainstay. most useful <laughs> cardiotonic, bone marrow tonic. Uh, there's plenty of evidence to support its use in this space. Mushroom complexes, uh, basic vitamins like E, A, depending on, on the type of cancer, B complex and, and phase two detox support in liver uh, detoxification um, and just bowel reboot, gut reboots, you know, complexes that have not so much glutamine, but, you know, um, all sorts of other nutrients for digestive regeneration uh, and eventually some probiotics and prebiotics thrown in there. Um, but I do tend to use a lot of antioxidants and anti-inflammatories. We might use things like cucumber and green tea extract a lot of mixtocopherols um, to support patients in this phase. What about things like the ongoing issues of menopause, um, you know, treatment-induced menopause and drug-induced menopause because they're on now on an aromatase inhibitor? How do you mm. effectively look after their, these dreaded menopausal symptoms, the sweats? What can we use? Well, the same things we would use if they weren't a cancer survivor, okay? So we're going to be using a whole lot of herbs like sage and um, you know, not all of the herbs that have an estrogenic base, by the way, we have to do be quite, we often have to be quite careful. Certainly you're giving patients vitamins, vitamin E, uh, I've found to be particularly good for, uh, treatment induced night sweats and hot flushes. Uh, we've also got exercise can reduce hot flush incidence and severity by about 30 to 50%. Right. Which is an ironic, you know, you want them to sweat and yet it helps reduce their sweating. Yeah, so any particular uh, exercise here? That is actually cardio exercise. Right. Uh, so a little bit of cardio exercise, although just be aware with cardio exercise, we don't want them to exclusively do cardio because doing cardio exercise every day does lead to a cumulative buildup in cortisol levels. So cortisol um, as a stress hormone can actually worsen hot flushes. And this is another thing about hot flushes. You can also get hot flushes because of adrenal issues. Of course. Yeah. Not just menopausal issues. So we're trying to, or thyroid issues. And that's why, you know, I mentioned before about hormonal imbalance, just checking their baseline um, endocrine feedback loops because, Patients can have disordered thyroid function after treatment or they may have disordered adrenal function after treatment. So, uh, you know, I often do a, a urinalysis or a, a um, urine metabolite test where I'm looking at their cortisol levels throughout the day and cortisone levels just to check on their metabolism just to see, you know, the hot flush isn't necessarily just because of the aromatase inhibitor. It might be because they've just got endured a year of treatment right. and they're adrenally exhausted. So things like pain... Oh, I know. Um, hand foot syndrome, palmar plantar erythrodysesthesia. I got it out. Yes. <laughs> well done. Um, so PPE. How, what sort of things do you use for that? 
Well, I do use, um, look, the B vitamins, a, a methylated B complex I would use, but also uh, vitamin E yeah. and PEA. So I use quite a lot of PEA these, these days. Um, and that is uh, also very effective for peripheral neuropathy symptoms. But mm-hmm. I don't find people that have um, extended hand and foot syndrome all that much after treatment has finished. That's a very common symptom with the treatment. Yeah during treatment, but not so much after. There's so much to cover and to know. Tanya, I've got to say thanks so much for taking us through all of this. Uh, Is there anything else that we need to know or any relevant um, resources that we can go to to learn more? I guess it's one of those things that we're doing patient by patient. So, you know, when you've got someone who presents with a a type of cancer and they're currently med, but you're wanting to try to reduce risk of recurrence, um, I guess we need to just look at the look up that um, type of cancer in the medical research, see what the drivers of that recurrence are. So the, the main driver might be an inflammatory process or the main driver might be an antioxidant process, a pro-oxidant process. So this is where you know we do want to find out about each of those cancers and just try to inhibit those processes as much as possible. I guess the two thing areas that I focus on the most in that prevention of recurrence phase is inflammatory processes um, and also just promoting antioxidant pathways, especially with liver detoxification, glutathionation and so on. So all those phase two detoxification pathways and antioxidant pathways, as well as managing inflammatory load They'd be the two areas that really, as a fundamental um, prevention package, we would want to focus on those. But then don't forget the person that's sitting in front of you. They just might need a good adrenal tonic, yeah, a nice sleep mix and, you know, a herbal hug at the time. A herbal hug. I love those words. Mm-hmm. Tanya Wells, there's a wealth of experience between those ears of yours Thank you so much for sharing some of it today on FX Medicine. This is obviously such an in-depth issue. Um, I'd love it if you would uh, join us back on FX Medicine at at another stage to go through other issues in caring for cancer patients, both during and after treatment. My absolute pleasure, and yes, I'd love to. Thank you so much, Andrew. Cool. It'd be great. I look forward to it. This is FX Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. A lot of what we do here at FX Medicine is made possible by the generous collaboration of our many guests and contributors. We extend our heartfelt thanks as we continue our education of evidence-based complementary medicine.